This episode touches upon the very serious themes of mental illness and suicide. It will not be appropriate for all listeners. Regular listeners know our series is primarily infotainment and often contains humor. But suicide and mental illness is no joke. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 988-247. Co-host Ellie has invented her own time machine using three tech toys she discovered at an antique store in Anchorage, Alaska. A 1982 Commodore 64 computer, a 1969 RCA 8 track tape player, and a 1963 Kenner EZ bake oven. Ellie! This is amazing. I can't believe you did this. Yeah, well, I get bored during flight layovers. I need to stay busy. Ellie has transported them to Le Café Select in the Montparnasse neighborhood of Paris in 1925, one of Ernest Hemingway's favorite haunts before he became famous as an author. So you think we might spot the 26-year-old Hemingway here? Maybe. I sort of had to guess on the date. The controls on an easy bake oven are a little vague for time machine purposes. Ah, bienvenue au Café Select. Puis-je commencer avec un beverage? Damn it. Five years of French in high school and college, and I can't even form a sentence. Do you know what he just said? No, I just, I just fly commercial jets and build time machines, so... Okay, what's the story here, guys? You're clearly not from here. You you speak English? Duh. How could you tell we weren't from here? Well, to begin with, you're wearing a Game of Thrones t-shirt? Seriously? Did no one tell you there is no custom-printed sportswear in 1925? And, by the way, HBO sucks. I'm just saying. Look, we're trying to find the author Ernest Hemingway. Ha! Otto. If you say so. He's over there at the bar, as usual. Is there any way we can meet him? We came a really long way. Sure, but you better hurry. At this hour, he's, he typically either gets into a fight with someone or he stumbles out. Ah, darn. We missed our chance. Yeah, too late. Uh, You guys going to order something? Um, I'm expecting a big tip. July 2nd, 1961. The home occupied by Ernest and Mary Hemingway, just outside Ketchum, Idaho in Sun Valley. Ernest Hemingway waits early, around 7 a.m. Only two days ago, he returned from receiving electroshock treatments at the Mayo Clinic. The purpose of those treatments was to suppress his suicidal impulses. His doctors declared him cured and authorized his release. It is Sunday, and his wife Mary is still asleep. He puts on his slippers and his favorite robe and goes downstairs. He finds the key to the gun cabinet in its usual place in the kitchen. He goes into the basement, unlocks the gun cabinet, takes out his favorite double-barreled shotgun, and loads two shells into it. He goes back upstairs to the foyer. Anchoring the butt of the gun on the floor and securing it with his feet, he inserts the cold steel barrels into his mouth. Then, without a word, he pulls the trigger. Happiness is a warm gun. 
Excerpt courtesy Paul McCartney and Sony Music Publishing. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Housley, and today, on the occasion of the 61st anniversary of Hemingway's tragic passing, we are going to look back at the bizarre personal journey and remarkable literary career of one of the most, if not the most, influential authors of the 20th century. To help us unravel the Shakespearean conundrum, I am pleased to welcome back my co-founding Scandal Sheet co-host, Cassia, for her biannual guest appearance. Welcome back, Cassia. Hi, thank you. Cassia, what could be a better way to kick off the holiday season, the season of love and, and giving, than the story of a celebrity morbid alcoholic who commits suicide? And also, this was your suggestion. <laughs> so, uh, how come? Well, why did I suggest this? Um, well, we were kind of on a literary kick with the last Vonnegut episode. And you are familiar with like three major authors as far as I <laughs> And one of them happens to have killed. There's more than three. <laughs> Okay. You've got to Sorry. count Ted Geisel. You've got to count Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss. Okay. Okay, sure. I just don't know enough about his scandals. Maybe there's something involved. <laughs> we can get into that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I was excited to talk about Hemingway. Okay. And of course, we are also joined by our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Hello, everyone, and happy holidays. The way things are going, all you humans are going to need some feasting and libations before the coming catastrophic recession. Thanks for that warm holiday message, Bernice. Cassia, it does seem a little creepy weird to do this episode at this particular time because Hemingway died 61 years ago and he was 61 years old at the time of his death and the year of his death was 1961. That's a lot of coincidences in a row, isn't it? I guess so. I'm not... Where did you come upon this? Is this something people are talking uh, about? Well, those are the facts. Uh, I mean, it is... I mean... Sure, sure. But how did you notice that it was 61 years ago? I just... I, did you just happen to count exactly. it? Exactly. I just said 2022 minus <laughs> 1961. Okay, okay. I just would never... It would not have occurred to me to connect these dots. Well, you know me. I'm a master of numerology. So. <laughs> sure, I, I, what is this? What is it's this just mean? like me and Nostradamus. We are just doing Hemingway now. So. <laughs> but when all of these stars align, like what's going to happen? Like if we say his name three times, will he reappear and like deliver a message? Will he reappear as Birdman, you mean? Birdman, Beetlejuice guy, Batman? Yeah, will his face appear in the sky? It might. I I just okay. don't know. Okay, I thought maybe you. I thought you maybe you would have some kind of you know St. Andrew's insight into this, but I have no insight into that. I just I feel like we need something else. This reminds me of like the Kennedy assassination stuff with the Abraham Lincoln assassination, like. 
Salman Rushdie was stabbed because of this or like I don't know like some kind of authors have succumbed to violence or self-harm as right well. right and and Lincoln is assassinated on Good Friday you know like the death of Jesus Christ I mean there's all these different things I mean if you really want to go down that road so it's almost as if somebody's playing around with this stuff it probably yeah, yeah. so let's temporarily set aside him's tragic ending and start from the beginning I mean, most of his life was an unlikely, sort of, rags-to-riches story. I mean, he wasn't really rags. He was kind of middle class. But, Bernice, many of our listeners were probably exposed to Hemingway's work in high school or college, uh, at least some of the short stories. But I don't know if most people know all that much about him. Can you give us a quick overview of his remarkably crazy life? Ernest Miller Hemingway. July 21, 1899 to July 2, 1961, was an American novelist, short story writer, and journalist. His economical and understated style had a strong influence on 20th century fiction, while his adventurous lifestyle brought him admiration from later generations. He published seven novels, six short story collections, and two non-fiction works. Many of his works are considered classics of American literature. He was awarded the 1953 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the 1954 Nobel Prize in Literature. Hemingway was raised in Oak Park, Illinois. At age 19 he joined the Red Cross as an ambulance driver and served at the Italian Front during World War I, where he was seriously wounded and returned home. This experience had a profound effect on his life and writing. After the war he moved to Paris where he worked as a foreign correspondent and fell under the influence of the modernist writers and artists of the 1920s expatriate community. Hemingway's debut novel, The Sun Also Rises, was published in 1926. His life in Key West, Florida and Cuba, as well as his experience in the Spanish Civil War and World War II were also tremendous influences on his writing. Hemingway had four wives. He almost died in 1954 after two plane crashes on successive days, with injuries leaving him in pain and ill health for much of the rest of his life. In 1961, he died by suicide. Casio. Hemingway was known during his life for like this ultra macho male image, a myth that he himself cultivated over decades. But there are some very odd aspects to Hemingway's childhood that seem contrary to his over-the-top masculinity as an adult. Can you help us understand what's going on here? Sure. Well, I don't know if this Freudian kind of BS psychological stuff that we've right, done right. or or what. But just having like I happen to have been to his childhood home, um, which is in the Oak Park neighborhood uh, outside Chicago. Very famous fancy pants neighborhood, right? Frank Lloyd Wright built a home for himself and his family there. Isn't that where the Obamas lived? Uh, no, they lived in um, uh, the south side of Chicago in the city. Oak Park is a suburb. Um, anyway, this is, it's a fancy neighborhood then and it's a fancy neighborhood now. So the house is a very Victorian, frilly, lace curtain, grand piano type of house. Stripy wallpaper and flowery napkins, all of that. And um, Ernest Hemingway happened to, uh, he has a couple siblings, and he was close in age to a girl, and his mother apparently wanted twins, 
And so she would grow, let Ernest grow out his hair and kind of dress the girl and the boy who were relatively close in age similarly uh, so she could pass them off as twins. And people have gone the extra step of saying that his, you know, later macho persona and his obsession with like masculinity in his writing and in his life was a rejection of this childhood. Okay. Rejection of the feminine image imposed on him, but also all of that kind of Victorian stuff. Okay. So I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not, or whether that's a shallow reading. Mm -hmm. But I mean, even in his time, because I was on that tour too. And it was like on that occasion, uh, because Frank Lloyd Wright lived, he, he and his family lived around the block and Hemingway was apparently as a child, Frank Lloyd Wright was an adult and he had children of similar age and in the neighborhood, Hemingway was called the um, the Oak Park bully, so he evolved out of wearing. You know, the the every time I go to the grocery store, there's a parent with a little girl in a princess outfit, which I guess is a thing. You know, with the sure, tiara sure. and the whole bit. So <laughs> once he got out of that phase, <laughs> he immediately <laughs> became. I don't know what's the name of the bully in the Dennis the Menace stories. He immediately became the bully and. Frank Lloyd Wright, they said that the tour person on the Frank Lloyd Wright tour said that Frank Lloyd Wright had to spank him once. Yeah, I thought he punched him. Okay, maybe he punched him, yeah. Or something. (laughs) Yeah. For beating up his kids. I mean, people may have just made that up because it's like, well, Frank Lloyd Wright and Ernest Hemingway live down the street from each other. We have to have some connection. Right, right. But I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty sure that uh, if the standards of today in terms of child abuse were applied to earlier times, just about everybody would be in jail. I don't know. Do you think there's any truth to it? Well, I, it certainly is a factor. And let me just bring in a couple things that I did not include in the rundown. Number t- two is a book that was published posthumously called Garden of Eden that he wrote well, he was still alive, but it just wasn't published, but he completely wrote it. And it was about, it was sort of a tropic of cancer. It was about a, a sexual journey with, between a man and a woman. And there's a lot of switching roles, gender roles. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it gets pretty, I haven't read it because when I read the summary, I'm like, okay, I don't think I can take this, but it's, <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it made a lot of sense mm-hmm. for them to wait, you know, his, his, um, his son Patrick, I think, was the one that eventually published it. But it's just as a bizarre insight into, you know, and it's not a novella. It is a, it's a big book into what was going on in this guy's head. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Number two, his third son, Gregory, uh, son by his second wife, was a crossdresser and uh, mm-hmm. got in trouble for some uh, homosexual activity in a bathroom, what have you. Eventually, Gregory would, long before this, this LBGQ movement, had done a um, uh, gender identity surgery, and he became Gloria. Despite the fact that he had had three wives and seven children, I believe. So, so he died, so he died as Gloria and he is one of the people who is listed as uh, a Hemingway who committed suicide. 
So I don't know what oh, role wow. uh, Hemingway's parental upbringing had, you know, what influence he, I mean, it's very, very difficult, right, to to determine this. And it's very, it's weird. I, did I send you, I know I, I mentioned the, the PBS documentary from last year that was done by Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, but there was a A&E biography documentary. They used to be very famous for that. And it was actually, in some ways, it was more um, penetrating and salacious than the Ken Burns documentary was because the one of the people that they talked to regularly was Gregory while he was still Gregory. And apparently Gregory... You know, he started out as as the ultimate macho dude. In fact, he left the United States, went to Kenya, and for like 15 years, he ran a business doing uh, hunting safaris. So when they're mm. when they're taping him, asking questions about Hemingway's life, they have him. They position him. They don't do it in a in a study or anything like that. The, the usual Ken Burns thing. They put him. He's like out on top of a mountain or something, you know. And it's just very rugged. Like you know, they climbed a mountain so they could do this thing with him. And he was just like a very very macho guy. And you were like, that guy is like the last guy I would think who would be like, okay, now I'm going to get my um, my transgender surgery. So, <laughs> well, okay, the ultra macho thing. And the ultra feminine thing, I think those are closer to each other than just gender being neutral or not really investing a lot of time or performance in one or the other. So like to me, like switching, like going back from like extreme one to extreme the other seems like not that crazy. Because the the tropes that are that we culturally impose on people related to gender whether it's the clothes we wear or our way we do our hair or makeup etc 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 are are things that are bolted on top of gender gender isn't necessarily you know i'm not sure uh you know if we saw on top of stress, yeah exactly I mean. and and the and the and the realities yeah. of, of of the process of reproduction and what have you but i'm not sure that um uh, uh, 60,000 years ago an early homo sapien would look probably wouldn't look a heck of a lot different than a guy would look <laughs> i don't know i doubt they they were strutting around like peacocks or something i don't know maybe they do in their way like with what's available to them like people that paint them, like indigenous people, uncontacted people that, that paint patterns with mud and pig, different pigments that they create, like all of their body. People always find a way to dress up, even if they only have feathers and stones and dirt. Well, I'll probably have to cut out some of this. I think we're going to <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> it's fun. Help me. Help me. Uh, well, you know, and um, so we're, there's no way we're going to be able to cover the, uh, his whole life. So I've just picked out no, picked out no, a, a few things much. that I, I wanted to get your opinion on, uh, get your searing insight on the the alcoholic playgrounds of the world. Um, so Bernice <laughs> told us about his World War One experience and and how he was a ambulance driver for the Red Cross in Italy and was seriously wounded after only six days. Uh, but but Let's she go. didn't mention that in the hospital he met his first love, Agnes von Karowski, a nurse at a Red Cross hospital uh, that he was being treated at. Now, that 
relationship shaped his life in numerous ways, didn't it? Presumably. So she was much older. Not much. Eight but years. She was eight years is him. kind of big. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah, I guess it, that eight years is a lot when it, you're Exactly. Well. Exactly. She was a nurse. So we have the kind of like sexy nurse thing going on. He wanted to marry her, but she ended up running off with some uh, Italian officer instead. Because supposedly she was worried about the age difference, right? That was that was her big excuse. Yeah, in that's in, the, in, the in her last letter to him. Yeah, yeah, and and he write, oh, it doesn't matter, blah 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 blah. Um, so yeah, people people have presumed that this you know uh, early rejection. Um, shaped his relationships with women where he had to reject them before they would reject ah, him. Ah, okay, good. Ah, right. okay. <laughs> right, and, and he puts that story with that nurse basically into what some people regard as his... He writes it over Well, well, and but, over but it's over. very explicit in A Farewell to Arms, right? There, there is... Except sure. that in Farewell to Arms... She dies at the end. She dies. Dun, dun, yeah. Dun. <laughs> she dies. No, no. Her. Well, she dies in childbirth. So in a sense, I may. Well, I mean, he is right. the author. Right. No, her. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's payback yeah. time, baby. Uh, <laughs> it's payback. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Let's, let's hold on to that a little bit. So, so Hemingway never went to college which wasn't particularly unusual in the early 20s for uh, even in the middle class. But even today in the U.S., only about 42% of adults hold a college degree. But he does love writing, and he becomes a professional journalist. Mm-hmm. And, and you've been that, uh, both a writer of fiction and a journalist. How do you think being a working journalist affected his future style? Yeah, so people um, people love to analyze the relationship between like fiction and journalism and yada yada um so with him like he wasn't a journalist for very long right he works in kansas city initially in this initial period right he's kansas city and then also toronto star i mean that was his and then the toronto later he becomes he got a few years in he got a few years in yeah yeah so Journalism, uh, you know, the the basic tenets is like, okay, you just get to the point, you get in quickly, you get out, not a lot of descriptors, simple sentences, um, uh, active voice. And Mm. uh, Hemingway is supposed to have kind of broken things down to the bare bones and it kind of exposed the heart of the story and let readers decide for themselves what it meant. Okay. And you used the word supposedly. So that seems to suggest a degree of skepticism. Did you want to? Yeah, I guess I do have a degree of skepticism about this because um, like you said before, that Hemingway is the most potentially the most influential 20th century stylist. I did. You said that, which is something a lot of people say. Right. And to me, the way I think about it is like it's more that journalism and the media became so prominent in the 20th century and Hemingway's style happened to kind of he happened to be riding the wave that was the tidal wave that just like knocked everything else out. 
So I don't know, like, it's, it's like hard to say whether or not he was just the harbinger of that or whether he personally was the causation. So I may want to move this to another part because I think it fits more. Okay, no, okay, no, sorry, I mean, what sorry, you said sorry. is great, but I'm just saying what I'm talking about next. So, so, um, in his, so while he's working as a journalist in uh, Kansas City, he falls in love and marries Hadley Richardson, a woman uh, who comes from a family uh, much more well-off than his. Um, but like his first love in Italy, she is nine years his senior. Now, it's very common today for a man to marry sure. a much younger woman, but I'm not so sure how common it is for a man to marry an older woman, either then or now. And granted, I mean, she wasn't middle-aged, but, you know, a 21-year-old man going after a woman who's 30, um, I mean, uh, is this a mommy <laughs> thing? I mean, what do you, how do you dissect this, or is it, or is it just a coincidence? Mm. Because it's two women in a row, I right? Two older women in a row. Well, two isn't like a huge okay. pattern, but it's definitely seems like he liked older women. He may have been trying to replicate like whatever feeling that he had with the with Agnes. Okay. Uh, he felt some comfort to it. And yeah, he's not like a totally normal dude. He's a writer. He's choosing a different lifestyle. So he he probably liked the the transgressive fact of it. Okay, and for people like myself who aren't particularly educated, would you like to define the word transgressive? Um, he's just crossing a sort of social okay. norm. He's pushing the limits of what society expects. Okay. So he and Hadley, who are newlyweds, they moved to Paris in December of 1921 at the advice of some of uh, his writer friends, because that's where it was going on. So they settle into a tiny apartment uh, in the now famous Left Bank, which is apparently sort of an artist colony at the time. And there he meets and befriends numerous people who would eventually become famous in their own right, like Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, James Joyce, Pablo Picasso, F. Scott Fitzgerald, blah, 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 blah. Now, <laughs> that time and place are the stuff of modern mythos today, at least in the minds of Woody Allen and other people. But to what degree is any of that sort of left bank 1920s expat stuff true, in your opinion? Uh, I think it's true, but it's also, I mean, what do you well, mean? Well, I don't know. I don't know. True. I mean, it just seems too... It's been romanticized, yeah, yeah. and it, and that I'm every... sure there were a lot of the, the idea that like okay, if we envision what it was like, that you literally see like some sort of cafe table with yeah, James Joyce, Picasso, Fitzgerald, Hemingway. They're all sitting around it, like they're like it was predestined that they would well, all that's be the famous, thing. and they would all like. Write I mean, they all go books. to Gertrude Stein's parlor right so she's the the wealthiest among them because she's an art collector dealer person and so they all go and they hang out at her house and it does seem there's sort of a feel like the round table or something it's like you know it's like mm -hmm. okay sir sir Joyce, sir picasso go and get me the holy grail start cubism yeah yeah, yeah. and i i think that there were probably a lot of random 
hangers on and other uninteresting people that have just been kind of like kicked out of the frame. And we just remember all the famous people. And we imagine that they're all just like sitting around and having a great time where they probably just had a more of a acquaintance ship. Mm-hmm. So only a certain, certain people. In reality. The but there was definitely something happening, happening there. It's not like it's all just like PR stuff that was invented okay. later. It was a moment. Okay. Well, you certainly can't talk about Hemingway's Paris period without touching upon the writing and publication of his very first real novel, The Sun Also Rises. And that turns out to be like every starving writer's dream, right? Because it was an instant critical and financial success. But it wasn't your average novel, was it, Cassia? I mean... I mean, let's invoke your your famous trademark phrase, the millennial alcoholic pr- playground. I think this book is the original <laughs> alcoholic playground book, right smack in the middle of prohibition. But you want to tell us a little about uh, Sun Also Rises? Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. Let me, uh, do you want me to talk about the plot or more like what it well, means? Um, both. And also tell us what a Romana Clef is. And and kind of the whole idea sure. that he takes this incident with his friends and he basically almost journalistically steals it, right? And changes the names and a, and a few other things, but they're... Well, okay, so this is known for being a Romana Clef, which is um, a fancy French word for a book that's basically like... It's a uh, fictionalization of real events and real people, and he basically just changes the names to avoid being sued and to label it as fiction. Um, And so it's kind of a a set of young, drunken couples wandering around Paris and taking this trip to Spain and um, seeing the running of the bulls. And it kind of presents symbolically this sort of decadent culture that is kind of cor- morally corrupt uh, at, at its core. Is that a fair assessment of the conventional interpretation? Yeah. Yeah. But then, then, but, but, you know, uh, the Pantina that he kind of, because he puts this like in the very first page before the book starts, this quote from Gertrude Stein that says, you're all part of a lost generation. And apparently they're referring to uh-huh. all these people that came out of the World War I era and they're disillusioned and blah, blah, blah. And, and mm-hmm. is that part of it? For sure. It was this, but that's part of the, the drunkenness and the rootlessness of uh, what was happening. Mm-hmm. The philandering. It was kind of like they're rejecting conventional life. They're rejecting um, conventional relationships. And they're all just kind of drowning their sorrows generationally, living for today and feeling sad about it (laughs) and glamorizing their own sadness. However, I think that the whole Romana Clef thing, uh, again, I just think that Romana Clef, autofiction, um, metafiction, like these are all things that have been going on for as long as people have been writing and generationally literary critics and whatever come up with different words for it at different times. But it's all essentially bullshit because writers are always doing the same thing and they're always writing about themselves. And the lens changes because 
time is never the same and you know the historical moment is never repeated exactly but like some of the mythology of this book is is kind of bullshit because he he returns to Spain several times to study this event from different angles um he's very intentionally writing this and collecting information and it's not like he just kind of is like oh i just go on a trip and then i just kind of toss off a little book about it <laughs> change some names make it cute like he he really did do this intentionally this is an authored work even if it appears to be realistic and modernist and tossed off so it was we said it was a, a critical and financial success but it it's sort of interesting that his mother was, like you said, their house was very, very classic Victorian, unlike the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house around the block. But she writes him this letter after she reads the book. Letter from Grace Hemingway, his mother, to Ernest on December 4th, 1926, after reading his debut novel. The critics seem to be full of praise for your style and ability to draw word pictures, but the decent ones always regret that you should use such great gifts in perpetuating the lives and habits of so degraded a strata of humanity. I belong to a current book study class, and we have lectures from the literary critics of the various newspapers. I could not face being present when your last book was to be reviewed, but one of the class told me afterward what was said that you were prostituting a great ability to the lowest uses. It is a doubtful honor to produce one of the filthiest books of the year. What is the matter? Have you ceased to be interested in loyalty, nobility, honor, and fineness in life? Surely you have other words in your vocabulary besides damn and bitch. Every page fills me with a sick loathing. If I should pick up a book by any other writer with such words in it, I should read no more, but pitch it in the fire. Wow, that's some very tough feedback, Kasia. <laughs> and that's his own mom. You know, you'd think she'd find something nice to say like, well, at least your title came from the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I actually don't think this is that bad. <laughs> because, I mean, here's the thing, here's the thing. is because it's a mom. And her only upset with it, her only critique is really that it's sort of, he's saying bad words and he's writing about bad people, which is a really kind of shitty critique because that doesn't mean that the author is saying these people are good or this is what life should be. Like he's, he's critique, he's cracking open his culture he's he's he himself is criticizing it in the book he's shining a light on darkness and that's what books are supposed to do and his mom is just embarrassed because she's a mom and she's not a, a writer she doesn't care for that mission but like if i read like if my own mom wrote this i'd be like okay whatever like she just wants to sanitize it she wants it to be pretty and nice it doesn't fit in. It doesn't go over well in the Victorian culture of of bourgeois Oak Park, Illinois, circa nineteen twenty five. No, certainly not. But it's not like the Victorian culture wasn't um, rotten and degraded, <laughs> which it was. They just, they just, they, which is why she's upset about they it. They just knew how to dress it up a little bit better. Yeah. 
Excerpt from A Movable Feast, a memoir of Hemingway's Paris years in the early 1920s, published posthumously in 1964. But sometimes when I was starting a new story and I could not get it going, I would sit in front of the fire and squeeze the peel of the little oranges into the edge of the flame and watch the sputter of blue that they made. I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. So, Cassia, Hem was honing his minimalist style of writing for years uh, with his short stories. But Sun Also Rises really demonstrates what was perceived as this new approach to narrative fiction at the time. And Casa, you're much more of an authentic writer than I am. When you Google Hemingway's name, like we said before, you always see adjectives like revolutionary, most influential, groundbreaking, blah, blah, blah. And much of that revolves around this concept that he called the iceberg theory. So maybe you can explain what that theory is. And is it just a case of an amazing marketing team at Scribner's and Sons uh, and being massively overrated? Or did Hemingway really change the <laughs> face of literature as his contemporary boosters claim? Yeah. Okay. So uh, starting with the iceberg theory, if you just envision an iceberg, you see a little tip of it sticks out of the water, but the vast majority of it is underneath ah. the surface. So Hemingway is uh, you know, trying to do this, or so he says, with his fiction, where the majority of the drama, the action, the pain of the characters is hidden underneath the prose, and only a little bit of it is peeking out. And he kind of thought that um, the quality of the story was directly related to the quality of what is omitted. There's some quote that he has with that. So... Is this invented or is is this invented or is he actually a revolutionary for coming up with this? Is yeah, that the question? Basically, yeah. Um I find it a little bit hard to thread together all of the different things that are said about Hemingway because I think that some of them don't it doesn't create a coherent picture. So the idea of omitting things that are truthful is to me completely contrary to the kind of journalistic style stuff, because to me, journalism is all about providing an explanation and taking, it's not about omitting details in order to kind of create space. It's kind of like giving everything to the reader and presenting different interpretations and it may be d doing that in a quote unquote neutral way by showing like different perspectives. Um, so like, I think there's an inherent contradiction in some of the marketing shit and it's not just marketing. I think a lot of like a lot of the Hemingway stuff came later. It wasn't contemporary. It, it came after the fact. And I think it's still evolving with stuff like the Ken Burns that continues to like enshrine certain viewpoints. Right. It's important to it's important to remember that a lot of his contemporaries wrote in a really flowery style that was still popular that is not popular at all anymore in American writing. Like the guy who wrote Look Homeward Angel 
try to read one fucking page of that book, which was like hugely regarded at the time, it's impenetrable. Like it's so like you just like he was so out of fashion. I think in his moment, he stood out. And I think that he won the future, like his style won the future. I just don't think that he led people down that path. I think that the result, it was like technological changes, social changes led us to this like more plain journal, quote unquote, journalistic style of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I mean, even his, you know, one of his very good friends, supposedly, and contemporary F. Scott Fitzgerald, even though he, he was writing about flappers and the jazz age and people drinking during prohibition and blah, blah, blah. You know, his the way he writes, like, you you know, you take the great Gatsby has got just these wonderful passages that are just beautiful, almost poetic language, you know, in description. So so he's definitely sure. sort of a classic romanticist as opposed to Hemingway, which is like, I went into the door. I got a drink. I sat down. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is some there is a little bit like in the. uh We'll get okay. to it in a minute, but the snows of Kilimanjaro, some of the stream of consciousness portions of that are a little, are more flowery. And we start seeing adverbs and different stuff in the memory passages. Okay. Um, so it's not like his, uh, it's hard to just like. So maybe he was influenced a little bit by his buddy uh, Fitzgerald or James Joyce or something. Well, sure. Okay. The two, the two admired one another yeah even though they knew that they wrote mm-hmm. differently but even even Fitzgerald was although he writes those really beautiful poetic passages like the great Gatsby is like something like 30,000 words long it's a very short book whereas like that that alone makes it a little bit more concise than what was what what other like quote-unquote great works of literature from the same time period were which were bricks and the poetry the poetic Victorian flowery stuff was just like it was chock full of it. It was hard to get through. It would be hard for a modern reader to make to make their way through that. So again, I I don't know if I can. I don't know enough. I'd have to like really spend years in the archives digging through and reading all of the contemporary news reports and like filing them next to each other and reading what he, what he was reading, reading what was popular mm-hmm. at the time to uh, completely debunk right. this theory. But I have a, I have a hunch that, um, you know, what we call influential is like kind of just what won, what style won. And like, people aren't responsible for it. It's just the style wins because of the zeitgeist and because what people are, what are people are interested in reading at that time. It's larger than any one person. Okay. Elise time machine has transported herself and co-host that to a remote part of Kenya in 1935. They continue to seek a meeting with Ernest Hemingway himself. Okay, Thad, we're here in 1935 and that's the Hemingway camp over there. Only about 50 yards away. This is probably the moment that inspired some of his greatest stories. And this is your ultimate dream with your literary hero. So I'm getting a big fat Christmas bonus, right? What? What blood do these vampire flies suck from when they don't have a Polak to suck from? Uh, you did take that malaria shot I sent you, right? Uh, you sent uh, a shot? What? 
Look, let's make this trip fast. I need to get you to an ER back home. Amani, is is that you? Ha ha simbo wende haraka. Kambi iko macho na wanadnari. Una wazakawa simba. My Swahili is a tad rusty, Amani. Got another language? And you're totally going to blow this simulation. Really? Is that what I'm hearing? Jesus. You know the rehearsals I endured for this? Wait, aren't aren't you the same guy from the Cafe Select? Okay, you got me at a disadvantage. What's going on? Ah, I'm totally getting a new agent. Listen, no time to explain. The Hemingway camp thinks that you're a pack of lions, and they have really big guns. So get out of here as fast as you can. Run! Run! Okay, Thad, we gotta go. Old man, now. Will there be ponies at the petting I like honey. And why? Why did I invent a time machine again? All right, anything for the bottom. How smart of me. Did I mention I also like string? Thad, there's a cliff and a waterfall ahead. It's our only way out of this. Jump. Do what? Just jump. So. You mentioned the snows of Kilimanjaro, I, um, and I did ask you to read that in The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. And then I wanted to ask you this question about macho, and I'm not sure how – I don't have a specific question about those two short stories, and maybe you can weave them together. I don't know, because clearly they're both about – so let me just ask you the macho question, and then maybe you can figure out a way to bring in those two stories. So, Cassia, yeah. so – Hemingway is known for uh, this uh, super masculine image, which people would call later call machismo or machismo. I said it at both the same time. (laughs) And, you know, while he was in Paris, I mean, he was doing he was pretty physically active. He would play tennis. He would box at the gym. But it was a gentleman like kind of a workout thing. He would ski in Austria. And, you know, that was just sort of yuppie stuff at the time. But beginning in 1928, when he and his second wife, Pauline, moved to Key West, he starts, like, really doubling down on the Marvel Comics action hero. He gets into deep sea fishing. (laughs) He goes on these African safaris, and he's shooting lions and leopards and water buffalo and, and... and, and then all this hunting and fishing stuff becomes a gigantic part of his personal uh, brand as well as, as, as featured in many of his books. So what is going on here and how does it play into thematically what, what, what he's involving into? Sure. Well, it, I think it's important to note that um, growing up, he would go on a lot of trips up to like northern Michigan and do a lot of hunting and fishing up there. So that was part of his childhood. Right, but, but, but like... Something that but like fishing for trout, like in that short story, Big Two-Hearted River, is different than shooting a lion that's charging at you. <laughs> it is, it is, but at least it's a, it's a start. Okay, it's, it's a, a start. Point. At least you got outside. It's different. It's like, it's not like he'd never, like, put a worm on a hook before, you <laughs> True. know? True, okay, gotcha. It, you know, it's like he had something, that, that, that northerly forestry guy was like buried within him i also yeah it's like he felt like he had to compensate for something i mean writing is not 
a manly profession. Like sitting around at a typewriter is not a, a powerful dude thing to do. So maybe it was kind of like as he got known for that, he had to compensate for it in some way. Well, and that's – but that's sort of like going back to Sun Also Rises. The character, which is essentially him, Jake Barnes, is a guy who sits in the stands and watches a bullfighter, right? He doesn't really go out and fight the bulls himself. But he goes from that to being like right in the middle of the – you know, being the guy who's delivering death either to a – 150-pound fish or to a gigantic water buffalo or whatever it is. Yeah, well, okay. So that brings up the bullfighting, which I kind of oh, yeah, please talk about please. a little bit, which is like he's clearly obsessed with that literally and as a metaphor because in addition to writing The Sun Also Rises, he goes and writes that whole nonfiction book about bullfighting Death in the well, Afternoon. And then Death. Yeah, and then decades later, you know, writes uh, magazine articles about it. So he continues to sort of revisit this thing. So bullfighting is like interesting metaphor for maybe who he is because it does start out as this thing that is put on by royalty to entertain the peasants. Um, Eventually, it's like rich, powerful people are on horses and then the poor people are down there kind of doing most of the work of provoking the bull and putting on the show till the rich person can like kill the bull with a spear and take all the credit for like what these other more hardcore people were doing. So that's where um, the running of the bulls the comes from. That's agitating the bull. That's where the bull, that's the origins of the okay. bull fight, which the running of the bulls is like related, tangentially related to. So there is always been this uh, battle in the bullfighting thing between like strength and cowardness between like rich and poor. And I think Hemingway was drawn to that. I don't think that he had super humble beginnings seemed to grow up. Well, his dad was a doctor playing cello, wearing a frilly (laughs) shirt. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think he probably was drawn. Most of the people that he was surrounded by were more of the Fitzgerald type, more of the silken pen, kind of staring up at the moonlight type of boy. <laughs> but he was always he was always drawn to these themes, and as he got older he just kind of doubled down on it. However, in these two short stories, I mean, the machismo is really exposed as being pathetic. I mean, I think you come away from it. He's not saying machismo is amazing. He's saying like, look how, I mean, it ends with both the characters dying. So it it always ends with the worst possible scenario. So which two stories are we talking about? Okay, so um, he goes on a safari and two famous short stories come out of it. The Short Happy Life of Francis Maycomer and The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Um, So in The Short Happy Life, that is the one where they're directly hunting a lion. And I think that's the more uh, macho-oriented one. Whereas to me, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, uh, it's about a writer. Right, so the character is kind of uh, suffering from gangrene, feels kind of death approaching him. 
he's uh, these also deal with like kind of dysfunctional relationships right. with women right both of these because that's, women that's who like are his wives the flip side of machismo women right. who are his wives or wait is the is he married to the chick and yes, his that's his wife and oh, she okay. is uh not unlike his second wife pauline she is the uh the money bags of the relationship yeah the rich one so right. that parallels more his real life well, I think the macho thing there is that he is, I guess, emasculated because he's not earning his right. living. He has to be supported by a woman. He's supported by a woman. It doesn't directly involve hunting a lion. It's more like I've been out here doing uh, wildlife stuff and I got well, sick uh, he, uh, and now he, I'm sitting here being he cared got, for. He was in the middle of doing something where he gets scratched and he didn't. He didn't do whatever he was supposed to do, put iodine on it or whatever, so it became infected. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So he was involved in some kind of hunting activity when he sustained his in- injury. So it's kind of a pussy way to go, right? It'd be rather, better to get torn up by a lion the, than, the, the, than have a, uh, a scratch turn into a gangrenous leg. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So one is like, I'm almost gored by a right. buffalo. And the other one is like, I got a tiny <laughs> scratch. I didn't put a drop. I didn't put Neosporin on it. And now I'm going to die in a mosquito, <laughs> under a mosquito net. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's mostly him reflecting on the past and things he wished he had done and regrets of his life. And hating his position like vis-a-vis this other woman resenting the power that she has over him it's very sad it's it's sad there's no way around it so like both of these are very like deeply insecure unsatisfied people who whatever feats they have accomplished they are not secure in themselves, in their identity, period, let alone their gender identity or their place right. in and the in world. Right, and in the uh, short, happy life, uh, the ending there, uh, you know, the, the general plot of the story is that he has an opportunity to kill a lion and instead he kind of chickens out and runs, which is humiliating. And then he finds his courage when they're going after the water buffalo and that courage is the first time he's really stood up to his wife and then she ends up blowing his head off quote unquote as, as an accident <laughs> as an accident sure <laughs> trying to save him yeah, or not exactly. and his his wife also cheats yeah, she on does. him she sleeps with the guide the the white hunter yep, so that yep, doubles the... the humiliation and she calls mm, him a coward it's these are extremely painful they Story really street. are. Like the whole time, my, my like leg was violently shaking the entire time I'm reading it. It's just like, oh my God, oh my God. Like it's not, these are not nice characters. I mean, you don't, you don't really root yeah, for anyone. Yeah, I mean, this is not It's a Wonderful Life at all, is it? I mean, this guy does not have any happy no. stories in his oeuvre, does he? <laughs> Everybody dies at the end. So. <laughs> The two big river is like way more comforting compared to these. Even if that guy is like traumatized from the war, it's still better. Right. Than- at least he, at least he uh, catches the fitch. He's just right? he's <laughs> cooking the beans and, and has an onion cool. sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Let's, 
this uh, we're on the subject of wives. Um, Hemingway has yeah. four <laughs> wives in 25 years. Four wives. Now, oh my gosh. You know, mm-hmm. and there were also a number of mistresses that, that weave in and out of the narrative in there. But uh, set those aside. I mean, Donald Trump had three wives, you know, in a much longer time range. Four wives. I mean, that, I mean, he must have been setting some kind of a record there. Okay. I would, I would attribute this to the time okay. period. I think people were just more marriage oriented. So if you kind of started an affair with someone, you'd probably be like, oh, let's get married. I think that's just kind of how people thought and what they did. Like if Hemingway was running around today, like these would just be girls that he dated. Well, I mean, but most people, people didn't behave with. like Henry VIII, right? They didn't just like, like burn through. I mean, would, would uh, divorce was no, considered no, no. a very bad is, thing, wasn't it? Wasn't it considered a bit? A lot. Sev- okay. This is true. But like a lot of these women were kind of similarly uh, uprooted in the way like they were um, war reporters they were foreign correspondents. Um, they were from different European countries or from America, and they were traveling around mm. different places. It's not like he's, like, taking a girl from the farm and, like, the, making her an honest woman and then dumping her. Like, I think he's kind of finding people who are mirrors of him in a way. And these are like, okay, I'm in Paris now. Like, we're going to be together for a bit. And then, like, when I'm somewhere else, I'm going to be with someone else. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird the way, the way really he transitions from this. one to another. You know, he they always sort of like kind of quasi live with him and his previous wife until he throws over the previous wife. So, yeah. I mean, it's not like he's cheating the, on uh, them in secret. It's almost like it's an open transition. No, it does seem that way. And that's why I think that's part, that's just common from the circle that he was okay. running in. I think we see the same thing with Fitzgerald and Zelda and their group. It's just a very incestuous little bohemian circles. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to Hemingway's books. And we, uh, there's, we can't even touch on each one briefly. Uh, I just wanted to point out that, okay, so ever since he publishes The Sun Also Rises, he puts out a new book every two to three years, you know, and they're always hailed as masterpieces. His last book published on that two to three year schedule was For Whom the Bell Tolls in 1940. And that was, again, a giant critical success, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And then, right. And then 10 years go by and he's, just about dark. I mean, the Scribner's just keeps republishing his short stories over and over again under different themes. And, and he writes some articles for some popular magazines. I mean, obviously there's World War II is in there and he, he goes over to France and, and stuff. But it really takes him a long time. Yeah, he goes through a low period, a blue period. <laughs> so, I mean, is that too much for you to oh, talk, yeah. too much exposition? Because his next book is 1950. Sure, I can I can just kind of read this. I'm not super familiar with this okay. period of time. So I just mostly read All this right. in my voice. Yes, that is true. It may be because he went from being a, a part-time alcoholic to a full-time alcoholic. And he came out uh, eventually, putting this behind him, he came out with a novel in 1950, Across the River and Into the Trees. And uh, it was a critical flop. 
right? Something that stands out amid all the praise he had been receiving. Um, it sold well and it topped the New York Times bestseller list, probably owing to his reputation. Right. But uh, his, his fans, his longtime readers were disappointed, especially because they had been waiting so long for new material. And people rushed to say that he was washed right, up. Right, right. That he'd, he'd written his best stuff mm-hmm. already. He had nothing mm-hmm. more to give. And then, of course, after that terrible critical reception, uh, you know, you could argue he finally had an excuse to get plastered. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure it didn't help his, uh, help his health that much. But then only two years later, he stages one of the biggest comebacks in literary history. Do you want to tell us about that? Right. So he comes out with The Old Man and the Sea, which is pretty slim if you've ever seen a physical copy of it. Novella length. And this is a book that helped reestablish his literary reputation and kind of catapulted him into a different echelon of his career, more legendary status. Well, I mean, didn't he win? Basically, it's directly responsible for him winning both the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize for literature, isn't it? Well, what was the... I remember reading something about... um, yeah, he's having a lot of health issues. Yeah, at he this is. Time. It's important yeah. to know his family has a lot of health issues, and he's he's struggling a lot. And um, there's kind of a death scare that happens somewhere in here. And Hemingway and others believe that some of these prizes were potentially. I mean, he he probably would have gotten them anyway, but maybe he got them sooner than he would have otherwise because. It seemed like he he might be dying. <laughs> okay, I'm. Th- I was thinking the, the the two things the the one time that we're we'll get into, but he he actually it is widely reported that he did die in 1953 as a result of one of the plane wrecks. But mm-hmm. that was the year after Old Man came out. Well, he gets the he gets the Nobel in 54. Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, yeah. So he, he says something like that. Like, he's like, well, I think you probably gave this to me. <laughs> thought. Well, that might be true then, right? <laughs> but it, he, yeah, but this, uh, I, I like what he said about um, this book, which is about a fisherman. And it's kind of a little bit of a Moby Dick thing going on. It's like very strong, you know, man and the sea very strong symbolic resonances, but he talks about his approach to symbolism, which is like kind of letting those, picking these really like archetypal, archetypally resonant things, but then trying to make them as realistic as possible. You know, trying to make a real, a real old man, a real sea, a real fish. So that way the symbol kind of works in the background, but you're not, you're so caught up in the world of his prose that you feel like you're reading about real characters and you're living with inside the symbol rather than like being aware of it the whole time in an English teacher sort of way. I don't know. Do you get that impression from reading his work? I I think that it's kind of like maybe some of his, um, the effect of his work has been spoiled by the fact that he is basically like a line item in a syllabus for most people before he's like something they read <laughs> of their own accord. Right. It's a, it's a school assignment. Is that what you like high school or college? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, no one ever asked me to read his novels, but I read a bunch of his short stories. 
Sure, but if you were in high school in 1950s, that, it wouldn't no. have been that way. He would have been what you read because it was cool, because you liked him, because you wanted to. No, it would be in the Saturday Evening Post, and it would be like you know a cover story or something. New fiction from Hemingway, blah, blah, blah. Back when people mm-hmm. put fiction in magazines, but uh, yeah, and it, you know, <laughs> and the thing is, you're right. I mean, this is where he's like almost a throwback to his old buddy Fitzgerald, you know, who had died by then, because the the, the whole thing is sort of a, you know, uh, an odyssey, a journey. You know, the old man and the fight with the with the fish, and then the fish gets you know eaten by the sharks and stuff like that. So so even in his triumph, he still fails. Um, you know, there's there's just this hugely bittersweet thing to it. And it's all. I mean, this is the same. It's the lion, it's right. the fish, it's the bull. I mean, it's kind of, we're just sort of swapping out the specifics, but the, the larger picture is like very And like similar. you said, there's always this element where the main character, who is a loosely veiled version of Hemingway himself, is just pathetic, right? I mean, here's this like mm-hmm. this old fisherman who's supposed to be really, really good, but he hasn't like caught a fish in 87 days or something like that. You know, it's like, oh man, you're done, man. You're washed. I mean, obviously he's like referring to everybody saying, you're done. You're washed up, man. You know, get another job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He could be like a Boy Scout leader. Hmm. Not sure I get that reference. Uh, oh, because he's, he's like, like really fishing. obsessed with that little boy. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so like, I wish the boy yeah. was here. That's what he says like every other paragraph. Boy, do I wish the boy was here. So <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, cool it, dude. <laughs> Take some salt, Peter. Uh, oh, my God. Okay. So now we come to the most depressing part of this episode, Cassio, which is Hemingway's passing. So why would a uh-huh. guy – not young, but only 61, and at that point, at the peak of his international fame and fortune, take his own life. I mean, what do you think? Oh, uh, okay. There's a lot of shit happening in his life. Um, as we touched on, you know, he had health issues and issues that ran in his family. His father had committed suicide. There's different letters and records of how deeply that had affected him. And him uh, years prior making comments to the effect of, yeah, I'll probably die that same way. So it seems like he had a kind of in a personal mythology of like, well, this is just kind of, this is my inheritance. You know, people in my family, they kill themselves. It's, it's what we do. Similar to kind of what Kurt Vonnegut had with his mom. And then besides his dad, uh, uh, his own, many of his own siblings uh, kill themselves. He had a lot of uh, brain concussion issues. He had been, yeah, uh, in the hospital, these horrifying plane wrecks. Also, I think what's important is that a lot of his friends were dying so that we talk about the the effervescent Paris years. By this time, a lot of those people are dead. Fitzgerald yeah, is dead. Yes. Um, they've all been destroyed. So he probably felt like his pack was dying off, like his actual family, but then his kind of uh, professional family, his peers. And he, yeah, again, he had this sort of strain of depression, which comes in through the writing, comes through his letters, through his prescriptions that had been written for him. (laughs) 
and he was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So he was self-medicating mm-hmm. and kind of destroying his body by choice. Okay. And so you mentioned the suicides. Uh, Bernice, can you list all the suicides in the Hemingway family beginning <laughs> with his father? Yes. Clarence Hemingway, father, by gunshot, 1957. Ernest himself, by gunshot, 1961. Ursula, sister, by drug overdose, 1966. Lester, brother, by gunshot, 1982. Margot, granddaughter, by drug overdose, 1996. Gregory later Gloria, originally third son, 2001. So that is six suicides. Damn. So... You want to talk to us about, I can't even pronounce the word, hemochro- can oh, you pronounce oh, oh. that word? hemochromatosis? Hemochromatosis. Okay. I think you said it right. Well, look, if we're saying it wrong, it's a nasty <laughs> Well, is it an excess of iron or something? And then that, for some reason, can trigger a million different maladies, including mental deterioration? Brain destruction. Yeah. Look, you've got a bad family thing but again like i could he have lived with this if this was his only problem well i mean yeah and his dad i don't his dad was a doctor and he knew that he had it and apparently even back in the 20s it was treatable with with drugs at the time Mm. so well i don't know why that brought him down but everybody had it you know it's it brandon i just think it's it's it it's another one of these. It's a risk factor. Doom laden yeah. factors that is happening. Also, he'd been getting electro shock right. treatment, and I'm pretty sure, like culturally, this was not the st- whatever the stigmas are against mental illness. Now it was way worse than I think there was a lot. And so he probably just felt pathetic and consigned well, to like the psych yeah because when he checked himself into the or actually mary checked him into the to the uh mayo clinic in minnesota he he went in under a fake name so uh there mm. you're right there really was a stigma attached to mental illness and nobody mary especially didn't want to for people to know that you know and they and they said they said he was being treated for um high blood pressure <laughs> That's the exhaustion. Well, I mean, I yeah. mean, wouldn't they just give you a pill? You wouldn't have to go in and get electroshock therapy. With you. No, no, yeah, that's yeah. clearly a we're covering up yeah. what the problem is thing. Yeah. Um, so all those different conditions, the sort of the gestalt of all these, uh, you know, basket of terribles or whatever, they they <laughs> just pile on one another. And I guess you know, any one of those conditions, like a regular person, might be pushed to. Uh, extreme behavior, but to have that many things going on simultaneously, I have to have some sympathy for him. Don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do. Do people not have sympathy for him? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do. I do think that Hemingway and his suicide is kind of a punchline, I guess, because of these really performative male things that he wrote about. It's easy to sort of typecast him. But just like all, all of this literary stuff, like um, Nabokov and like Lolita, like okay, if you when you read Lolita, it's a, it's the famous thing that we associate with older men and younger women. But like when you read to the end, it's like 
Lolita's ugly and old and the guy is like miserable and pathetic. Um, it, it includes the demise of its own illusion. Hemingway was the same way, but, and yet culturally we still sort of live in the illusion. We don't take the deeper layer and integrate that into the character that we have of him. So yeah, I have sympathy for him and I wish that he had lived to write more. I wish that he had lived to uh, evolve some of these themes to the next place because it does feel like a little bit stuck in time and it would have been really interesting to see again him writing about old age when he actually was older than 60 or whatever right right from the perspective of a guy who had been mr macho and now he's um now he's an old guy which i guess you could argue that's what old man in the sea was about but and then the other thing is i mean there's a million ways to commit suicide and most of his his dad did shoot himself but all the other people we mentioned died of you know they just went with the drug overdose thing you know and they died in their sleep basically and he didn't want to do that and he obviously he didn't want to just kind of rot away in a hospice or something like that if he was just had too many terrible conditions and so i mean talk about going out with a bang literally i mean that's pretty I mean, with his current condition, you know, he was had all these problems with the concussions. I mean, he was walking with a cane. He, you know, he there was no way he was going to be able to go on another safari or something and get eat, eaten by a lion. But, you know, blowing your head off, that's pretty big stuff, man. Pretty spectacular. I can't think of anybody else uh, of fame that, that went out that way of their own hand, self-inflicted. You mean shooting as opposed to like hanging? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hanging is sort of like, eh. I mean, that's almost like an overdose, right? But to really, to, I mean, because they had to blow your head off. I mean, it. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's like hard to imagine, but. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't go into the bathroom. I mean, you hear about these people, they go in the bathroom, they sit in the tub, like in the Godfather movies, the guy, you know, they tell the guy, okay, now you must go yourself. He goes in the bathroom, fills up the tub and just opens his, uh, you know, slits his wrist. He didn't do that. He was, he was in the foyer of the house. He goes downstairs, gets the gun, goes all the way back up, right where people come in and <laughs> splatters his brains. It must've taken weeks. To, to clean yeah, that up. The foyer, de- the foyer detail is interesting. He's like, you're not going to miss this, guys. Like, no. I'm right here. I'm, I'm not hiding. in the. I'm not in the garage or the bathroom or the bedroom. I'm at the main entrance. Right. He's like, yeah, it's a spectacle. But he, again, and you mentioned this in the rundown, it, it is that kind of dance with death. He was always fascinated by that. And that was his subject. And... In his art and in his life, he kind of manufactured this own conclusion for himself. It's almost, it's like, yeah, it's like another one of his short stories. Mm-hmm. So. He was a sicko. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sorry. It's like really sad. But. Well, okay. That's a great segue because so Scribner's Hemingway's publisher since the Paris days, uh, which is now a division of Simon and Schuster, but it still exists as a brand. They report that they sell about 150,000 copies of The Sun Also Rises each year in the U.S. alone, and then worldwide sales are over 300,000. And that's only one of his nine books. So, I mean, most contemporary authors would be delighted. I'm sure if one of your books sold for 150,000 copies, you would be, you know, popping champagne and dancing around the house. But, you know, 
it's bizarre because, I mean, if you do read that book, I mean, it's filled with anti-Semitism, misogyny. Um, I mean, if you look at the stylistics, you know, aside, there's so many things in it that would offend the modern reader. So it refuses to go the way of William Faulkner or James Joyce's work. Why do people continue to read Hemingway other than the fact that it's they tell you to in high school? Yeah, there's a lot of things going on okay. here. I think it is the fame. It's not necessarily I was told to read him in high school, but he is a famous figure. We know him as a character. Um, he does wrestle with these like classic American themes. Okay. I think he he lived longer to establish his reputation, more so than like people like Fitzgerald. He just has more output mm-hmm. of the novels than than like somebody like Fitzgerald. Right. And he's easy to read. Like like we said, he won the future in terms of his literary style. That kind of plain, flat thing was huge in the 2010s. You know, like it's still very much a going thing. His recommendations for writing are what like a lot of people would continue to prescribe today. And that kind of contributes to it. Yeah, there was a uh, there was a scholar in one of the documentaries, maybe it was the Burns Novak thing, who said that a lot of the modernist writers, whether it was James Joyce or Pound or Faulkner, they there's a level of difficulty. It's not. I mean, when you pick it up, you're like, yeah, oh. James Joyce. I mean, you you have to. That's a homework assignment that you give to yourself. Oh man, that's more than a homework assignment. That <laughs> is a prison sentence. Yeah, it's, man. I remember yeah, I had yeah. to read the. My, you know, life of an artist as a young man. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm I'm dropping out of high school. Um, yeah, it, it appeals to it appeals to our sensibility even today. Mm-hmm. But it's still I mean, it's it disarmingly. All of the, but it still has all the kind of glamour and excitement of the 20th century, World War One, World War Two, Paris, 1920s right. that we're right. we're fascinated with culture and we're excited about um investigating and relitigating over and over so yeah i think it's just like a confluence of all these different things of That's uh, a confluence great marketing <laughs> like because i we know what this guy looks like like if i just like close my eyes and think of hemingway i see like 20 different images flash through my mind of him throughout his whole life him young him old and it's not the same way with other writers so his image has become it's like Elvis-like. It's been cultivated. Like we've we see him at the typewriter with the cats crawling around him. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Yeah. So I think that like there's been some explicit marketing work here, and just he happens to appeal to modern sensibilities. He covered all of these things that are so interesting, and he dealt he grappled with these like quintessential American themes of like man versus wilderness like the death drive macho culture all the shit yeah you know he almost sort of um if he lived today he'd be like a creature of the selfie you know there's that picture of him standing in front of a mirror with his yes, yes. shirt off and he's like lifting weights with dumbbells he's doing bicep curls uh-huh. and he's and he's standing in front of a mirror he's admiring himself he's admiring uh-huh. his muscles and it's you know and it just reminds me of someone like Kim Kardashian you know always uh putting on Instagram posts of her you know quasi naked in the bathroom or something like that or in a <laughs> bikini i mean it's almost yeah, the exact he, same thing isn't it the mirror selfie 
Yeah. Yeah. For sure. He he has more of of an image than most writers today. It's like Maya Angelou is not like naked taking pictures of herself. <laughs> <laughs> no string bikinis for Maya. Huh? Other, other people aren't doing this shit. You know, it's no, not- no. Yeah, I don't want to see Dan Brown in his underwear uh, or J.K. Rowling. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> on that note, is there anything we missed that you wanted to cover? Is there any that I can, uh, you know, put it back put into it another back. part? Of, yeah, if you want to be. Well, one of the things it. that I, and this isn't necessarily super important, but. Okay. When I was going through when, when I was going through all of this and cuz I read a movable feast when I was like 17 or or 18 which is probably the appropriate time to read it. Um When I first read it and then I gave it to you, was that it? Yeah, Cuz I know it was years ago. Yeah. But so like I guess I thought that that was written more contemporary to the period, which is completely wrong. So he wrote no, that. No. That was like the last thing that he wrote, basically. It was published right. posthumously. Yeah. Um, and Months, I, be- weeks I, before he died. Yeah. Right. And he had kind of found a trunk of old notebooks and letters, whatever, from that period of time. And that right. kind of inspired it. And I don't know how much of it was like taken from that or like, you know, we don't know like what that archaeology work was, like how much of it was new or how much of it was uh, from the from the period. But well, the in has, the, in the I was just going to say in the restored they they did a republication of it because there was a lot of controversy around the way Mary Hemingway had edited it, sure. and so so Patrick Hemingway, his son, and Sean Hemingway, his grandson, did a restored edition, and then there's a huge huge forward and introduction where they go through the day by day archaeology of. You know, and then they're very, very critical of of Mary and whoever else was helping her in some of the decisions she was making because they felt like, because at least the the edition that I read, you know, he's very worshipful of Hadley, and she probably mm. wanted to throw both Hadley and Pauline under the bus. So yeah, she had a an agenda. So she had an agenda. It's, it's yeah. not going to be like the most truthful work, probably. I just think that that's super fascinating that that's sort of where he leaves us in terms of his literary output because it is such – it makes total sense that he wrote it later and maybe I'm just dumb for having forgotten that context. But it is so romanticized, but he's also sort of romanticizing his own past on top of the one that culturally had already been established by that point. There was already nostalgia for that period. Mm -hmm. And other people had written about it and talked about it and analyzed it and the people that he's writing about were were dead right so it's like right and then he really sort of book. it is haunted it is haunted because you know and, and there's a ton of stuff about about Gertrude Stein and um Fitzgerald in there and a lot of the Fitzgerald stuff is is by no means complimentary I mean he really gets mm-hmm. into his alcoholism which you know also- who is who is who is Hemingway to talk that's what uh, I mean. Maybe. When he's writing about, <laughs> he's yeah. writing about that. He's writing about himself at the same time. I yeah, think. probably, probably. Yeah, so it's like it's a very shadowy book, but it comes off as being kind of light and romantic and enjoyable at the same time. And it's that's why I just so it's to me it's such tragedy. I wish that we could have seen what he did after that, 
where did he go after he had kind of exercised the ghost or whatever brought the ghost back what would he have done next like such a big question well there are those three uh posthumously other books that were published by his sons uh, we mentioned garden of eden which was the sexual odyssey mm-hmm. and then uh, there's another africa book called true at first light which is about the about that trip where he got into the plane wrecks and stuff like that and then there's a third book, which is kind of an old, it's called Islands in the Stream. It's sort of an old man in the sea on steroids. You know, it's a much longer book um, about a guy in Cuba who's a writer. Guess what? So, hey. <laughs> and who likes to fish. So, but I mean, he was still alive at that point. What you're saying is that what if he lived till 70? Yeah. What would he be- have written? Like if he was going to look back at World War II as a 70-year-old man or look back at Vietnam as a 70-year-old man. and Or not even look back, but just like um, digest the present period, a lot of war and trauma and gender changes going on during the time that he could have lived to see. Um, what would he have thought about it? How would he have grown as a person? Could he have kind of moved past some of these obsessions and like explored new themes? I I, I just would have liked to see that because a lot of that does seem kind of like, okay, that makes sense. It seems like the logical next step based on the stuff we knew him to, to do. I just would have liked to see the, the, fur, the further, the second step, the third, the fourth. Right, right. Well, it's time to toss a handful of dirt on the coffin lid of this episode, folks, I want to thank series co-founder Cassia for making a return appearance and a Bernice for her excellent work. I also want to thank Ellie and John Hookstra for their acting appearances in the scripted portions that take place in Paris and Kenya. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to podcast on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on... Scandal Sheet. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.